0: Hey everyone, quick announcement. If you want to support this podcast, check out my website, useconpodcast.com. There you'll find a link to my Patreon as well as some other interesting things, like the list of books and resources I use in putting each show together. Some other ways you can support this project are by subscribing to the show, writing reviews, or sharing the podcast on social media. One last thing make sure you follow at UseconPodcast on Twitter. All right, now for the history of U.S. economics. I want to start this episode with two quotes, one from 1842 and the other from 1836. In 1842, Sidney George Fisher, a Philadelphian, said this quote, Everyone has become poor, and the calamities of the times have not only broken up the gay establishments and put an end to social intercourse, but seem to have covered the place in a settled gloom. The streets are deserted, the largest houses are shut up and to rent, there is no business. There is no money, no confidence, and little hope. The miseries of poverty are felt by both the rich and the poor, and everyone you see looks haggard. Unquote. Now here's a quote from six years earlier in 1836. Quote, everyone with whom I converse talks about how 100% is the lowest return on investment. No one is known to have ever lost anything by a purchase and the sale of real estate. Unquote. that's from John Gordon, a Baltimore investor. So what happened between 1836 and 1842 to cause such a change? In short, what caused such a dramatic shift in outlook has to do with an inflationary boom like the one we saw preceding the Panic of 1819 from a few episodes ago. It was followed by an economic panic and then an ensuing depression. Specifically, the policies in international climate in the aftermath of President Jackson shutting down the Second Bank of the U.S. unleashed inflation until prices reached their peak in 1837 and again in 1839, before the economy fell off a cliff. In this episode, we'll explore what caused these events and what lessons can be drawn from them. By 1836, Andrew Jackson had defeated Nicholas Biddle and the Second Bank of the U.S. in what came to be known as the Bank War. Jackson first vetoed the central bank's charter renewal and then just defunded the bank in 1833, effectively putting it out of business. Immediately after the central bank's funds were moved into the vaults of the private banks in the early 1830s, inflation began advancing at a rapid clip. From 1834 to 1837, Inflation rose at 21% per year. Now, there is some controversy about whether or not Jackson's bank war caused this inflation, or if it would have happened anyway due to international economics, which we'll explore in a moment, but historian Alistair Roberts points out in his book that when Jackson destroyed the Second Bank of the U.S., he directly set in motion two forces which led to the asset bubble in the 1830s. The first outcome of Jackson's crusade against the central bank was that without the central bank, there was no institution there to keep the private banks honest when it came to money printing. You see, previously, Nicholas Biddle's central bank had been in the practice of redeeming huge quantities of banknotes for specie from the private banks. This meant that the private banks had to stay cautious when it came to printing money, because they didn't want to be left insolvent if the central bank came asking for gold and silver with a wagon load of paper notes. In fact, the central bank made a practice of redeeming paper banknotes for gold and silver often enough that it came to be known as, quote, the regulator of the currency, unquote. So, once the central bank disappeared, private banks lost the need to be conservative with their note printing. So, that was one factor that led to the inflation leading up to the Panic of 1837. A second reason why Jackson is blamed for the inflation that led to the Panic of 1837 was because he took the federal wealth out of the Second Bank of the U.S. and injected it into the vaults of 91 private banks. This was known as the Distribution Act of 1837 and it was intended to democratize power from the hands of the central bankers into the hands of private citizens. By the way, for context, up to this point, private bank wealth is estimated to be around $80 million, and that's in nominal values, of course. But after the Distribution Act, private banks suddenly received a stimulus of an additional $30 million. And of course, after receiving that money, the private banks immediately began lending at a ratio of 5 to 1, or 10 to 1, or 20 to 1 sometimes. So that $30 million was pyramided into easily hundreds of millions of new dollars which made their way into circulation. Talk about an inflation-red alert. But the Jackson administration wasn't the only factor contributing to American inflation. No, international economics also played a part. The American money supply grew not only due to domestic monetary policies, but also because silver coins were flowing up from Mexico, who was deep in the throes of Gresham's Law. Now, remember, Gresham's law says that cheap money will push the more valuable money out of circulation. Well, for reasons we won't explore much here, cheap copper coins happened to be flooding the Mexican economy at this time, which pushed Mexico's silver over its border into the United States. The effect was that the private banks were not only receiving gold and silver from the Distribution Act on the part of Jackson, they were also receiving it from Mexico, which meant that they could print even more money which ended up as even more loans. All the while, the banks could keep their specie reserve ratio fairly consistent. Another international economic straw, which led to the growing inflation inferno in the U.S. in the 1830s, was that paper notes were becoming the preferred means of international trade at this time, especially with East Asian countries. This meant less silver was flowing overseas, leaving it to gather in the vaults of American banks, who, of course, used it to print bills and then issue more loans, adding to the inflation issue. The final international factor which led to the economic bubble in the U.S. in the mid-1830s was the British. The British government had been offering bonds with yields of around 3% on average. Now, contrast that with the high-grade American bonds yielding 5-6%. All high-grade means, by the way, is that the bonds are considered very safe, and that the company who issued the bonds is very unlikely to default or miss a payment. Well, anyway, as happens today, investors send their money wherever they can get the best return for the lowest risk. So, upon hearing the euphoric sentiment of investors like John Gordon quoted at the beginning of this episode, and then looking at the meager 3% return that the Bank of England was offering, European investors began sending their money to the United States in droves. For example, in 1833, British investment in America was about $110 million, which was the average for the preceding decade. But three years later, in 1836, that amount had doubled to $220 million for that year alone. This inflow of foreign money caused the demand for investments to go up dramatically, inflating American investment prices and giving rise to what economists today call irrational exuberance. Now, remember this part, because once the Bank of England caught wind of just how much British gold was flowing into America, they abruptly slammed on the lending breaks to American firms. And that freezing of the credit markets was one of the big reasons why the bubble ultimately popped in 1839. There's an interesting side note that I want to point out here. One of the larger draws of foreign capital into the U.S. involved the buying of a new asset class of securitized investments. All securitizing is, is the bundling of cash flows from a bunch of different individual assets into one single investment vehicle. Securitization is one way in which investors diversify risk across multiple different assets. For example, in 2008, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac had been securitizing the cash flows of thousands of different mortgages into what they called a mortgage-backed security. Investors could then buy a mortgage-backed security from Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac and gain access to a piece of the cash flow of the thousands of different mortgages which that mortgage-backed security represented. As homeowners, whose mortgages had been bundled into the mortgage-backed security, paid their mortgage, that money would pool into the mortgage-backed security to be distributed to the investors. And that was the investor's return. You see, this way, If a handful of homeowners didn't pay their mortgage, the overall risk to the investment was fairly minimal. There were, after all, thousands of other mortgages packaged into that single mortgage-backed security, so from the investor's perspective, the change in overall cash flows from a couple of defaults was pretty insignificant. This same concept was applied during the inflationary boom of the 1830s, except the securitized assets weren't houses, they were slaves. Investors had securitized the future cash flow of human beings. If a single or even a handful of slaves in that investment died or ran away, the change in the overall cash flows from the investor's perspective was pretty minimal. There were, after all, thousands of other slaves in that securitized asset whose cash flows could be depended on for the overall cash flow of the investment. This asset was known as a faith bond, and it proved immensely popular to British investors, and it helped to fuel the staggering growth of slavery in the antebellum South. In fact, though you might think that financial centers like New York or Philadelphia would have the densest concentration of banks during this era, it was actually New Orleans, in the deep South, where the securitization was taking place. Cotton plantations and the slaves needed to run them, were the beloved investments for American and English investors alike. English investors weren't the only European force affecting the American economy. No, watching irrational exuberance develop in America, the cautious Bank of England began restricting the flow of credit to American firms so as not to allow British firms to get too exposed to the American bubble. By October of 1836, the English Central Bank had just fended off a bank run in England, and it was running dangerously low on specie reserves. The relative shortage of specie in English vaults caused their banks to restrict investing in American firms so as to keep gold and silver in Britain. And it also caused the English banks to begin calling on loans and exchanging notes for specie from American banks. It was a situation not unlike that which precipitated the Panic of 1819, where the Bank of England put sudden, immense specie demands on the Second Bank of the U.S., which helped to prick the bubble back then, too. So here we are in late 1836, and again, the Bank of England is suddenly demanding specie from American firms. This all slowed lending in America, at the same time that lending and debt were the only fuel keeping the American asset bubble inflated. If we jump back across the Atlantic, at the same time that the Bank of England was tightening lending, the bubble taking shape in the U.S. looked something like this. The banks were flush with gold and silver reserves and used those reserves to back the printing of tons of new money. That new money was then being poured into a handful of assets. They were primarily slaves, land, and cotton. But land and slaves were really just auxiliary to the growth of cotton. Cotton was king, as they'd say. By 1836, cotton production was in a euphoric frenzy, and larger and larger quantities of it were arriving in English cities to be processed into textiles every month. I mean, cotton exports to England in 1826 were 205 million pounds, but 10 years later, in 1836, cotton exports had more than doubled to 424 million pounds. So here was the problem. American cotton growers had gotten so wrapped up in the frenzy and the eye-watering profits that they lost sight of the basic laws of supply and demand. As tends to happen during a bubble, we'll see this dynamic over and over again, I promise you, investors believed that asset prices could only go up and up, so they leveraged and positioned their investments to be increasingly exposed to those assets. The 1837 iteration of this fallacy took the form of cotton growers, brokers, and investors who believed demand for cotton could only go higher. To them, it was unthinkable that the white-hot cotton market could ever slow down. So they invested more, and more in the growth and trade of cotton, leveraging themselves and becoming extremely vulnerable to any changes in cotton's apparently unstoppable meteoric rise. But they were wrong. Demand for cotton could only go so high. Demand reached its peak in 1837, when all of a sudden, the price of cotton began to level off. Now, if growers had recognized that the equilibrium between supply and demand for cotton had been met, and stopped sending record quantities of cotton to market, then maybe the panic of 1837 and 1839 could have been avoided. But that's not what happened. Instead, cotton growers in the South had spent years configuring their plantations to grow as much cotton as possible, which makes sense when you think the price of cotton can only go up. But it also means that shiploads of cotton were continually being brought to market even after the market was saturated. After prices leveled off in 1837, indicating demand had been saturated in that year as 424 million pounds of cotton arrived in English ports, in 1838, a record 595 million pounds of cotton flooded into England, where most of the world's textile processing was taking place. So, what do you think happened to cotton prices? Well, it's simple supply and demand. When there's a surplus of a good on the market, sellers have to drop their price in order to sell all of their inventory. So, as you can imagine, the price of cotton began to level off. But as I mentioned, new ships full of cotton kept arriving at port every day, which caused cotton's price to fall off a cliff. Now you might be thinking, well, Why couldn't cotton growers just slow down some once the price began to level off? Well, unfortunately, markets in the 1830s weren't that nimble. I mean, ships were spending weeks at sea transporting the cotton. Once the transport ship had departed, that ship was going to arrive in England, regardless of what the market prices there were, and the cotton growers back in the United States, well, it would take weeks for them to find out what their cotton sold for over in England. But that's not to mention the real reason why the cotton market was so sluggish, to respond to price changes. The problem was that this year's cotton harvest was planted the year before, so in a sense, supply for 1838 had already been determined back in 1837, long before market prices began to level off in 1838. There's one more dynamic that caused supply to overload in 1838 that deserves mention. Think about it from the perspective of a cotton grower, who had just spent the last year producing a bounty of cotton. As prices level off, Well, from a macro perspective, it would make sense to begin slowing down supply instead of continuing to flood the market. But from a micro perspective, that is from an individual grower's perspective, they might have said to themselves, well, sheesh, I better get this cotton to market before any of my competitors do in the case that the price keeps going down. So falling cotton prices actually helped to speed up the oversupply of the cotton market as individual participants felt the need to sell their inventory before their competitors could bring their goods to market and prices could go down any further. This is where the bubble began to pop. As cotton's price began to decline, three prominent English cotton brokers, they were called Wildes, Wiggins, and Wilson, began to struggle to stay in operation. The Bank of England agreed to help keep the three firms afloat, it was a bailout of sorts, contingent that the three W's, that's what they were called, halt any new financing of American ventures. The three W's consented, effectively ending a major source of English monetary fuel for the cotton, land, and slave bubbles underway in the United States at the time. Making matters worse, once cotton prices fell, Le Havre, France's main cotton exchange, pardon the pronunciation, went out of business entirely. In short, European demand for American cotton had begun to dry up in 1837 and early 1838. Now, U.S. policy also did its part to prick the fragile surface of the bubble. It wasn't just the Europeans. In the years before the bubble pop, government revenue from land sales quintupled between 1834 and 1836, due to land speculation on the part of cotton growers in the South and the West. But, wary of paper money and the inflation that it did provoke, Jackson exercised an executive order in 1836 known as the Specie Circular, which took the winds out of the sales of land prices. The Specie Circular required that all new land sales be done in gold and silver, not in paper. This had the effect of draining Specie out of the conservative New England banks and putting it into the vaults of the banks on the frontier where the land sales were occurring. The specie circular did have the desired effect of slowing inflation and credit, but for better or for worse, it also took away the monetary fuel that inflated the land bubble. And it weakened the eastern banks, who saw their specie reserves begin to diminish as that gold and silver was being moved to the frontier. Alright, so now we're on the brink of the panic, so let's do a check-in. Foreign investments, especially from the British, are flooding into the U.S., which was pushing asset prices up. The federal government is pushing surplus capital from land sales back into circulation, and American banks are printing money and extending loans hand over fist, they being flushed with specie from Mexico and from Jackson's Distribution Act, where he took the federal funds out of the central bank and gave it to the private banks. Suddenly, in late 1836 and 1837, cotton prices began to slip due to oversupply, causing cracks to take shape in the cotton industry. Overleveraged firms, like the three W's, began to struggle to stay afloat. Meanwhile, a major French cotton exchange went out of business entirely. At the same time, American banks, especially those in the East, were beginning to feel pressure from two directions at once. One was from England's tightening of credit and demands for specie, and two was from Jackson's Specie Circular, which slowed land sales, leveled off land prices, and relocated specie reserves from the New England region to the speculative southern and western frontier banks. While cotton brokerages in England began receiving life support from the English Central Bank in the face of plateaued cotton prices, several American firms began to crumble as well. Overleveraged and believing the price of cotton could only go up, one of New Orleans' largest cotton brokers named Herman Briggs suddenly collapsed. The news of Herman Briggs' collapse reached New York in March of 1837. Upon hearing the news, Joseph and Company, a New York lender to whom Herman Briggs owed a tremendous sum, immediately declared bankruptcy too. By early May of 1837, the public had lost confidence in the New York banks, and a full-blown run was underway. A run, you might remember, is when depositors rush to a bank to withdraw their money, hoping to get there as fast as possible to get their money back before the bank runs out of money. Runs caused banks to lose liquidity oftentimes, and it could force a bank into bankruptcy. At least, that's what happens in theory. In practice, New York banks responded to the run by halting specie exchange, in violation of their state charters. New York banks basically just said to depositors Yeah, sorry, we don't actually have any gold or silver on hand to exchange for your notes like we said we would. How about you come back in a couple days? Or, actually, how about you just come back in a couple months? Well, despite the breach of their charters, the halting of specie redemption, plus a $1 million loan that the bank somehow managed to get from the Bank of England, even though it was in the middle of a credit contraction, was enough for the New England banks to briefly stabilize themselves and resume exchanging specie in 1838. The tumult appeared to be localized to the New England region, and as far as anyone could tell, by the end of 1837, the threat to the banking system appeared to have subsided. But that was just the calm before the storm. In 1838, cotton growers and bankers alike breathed a collective sigh of relief. Cotton speculation on the part of a handful of banks, especially Nicholas Biddle's Pennsylvanian remnants of the Second Bank of the U.S., caused the price of cotton to recover The bankers believed that cotton's price drop was just a glitch in its otherwise skyward trajectory, and began buying up cotton in droves, thinking that they were buying cotton at a giant discount. But this speculative play ultimately spelled doom for every bank involved. For the time, however, it was enough to pump cotton's price back up from 9 cents per pound at the beginning of 1838 to 14 cents per pound towards the end of the year. The speculative banks thought that they had made the trade of a lifetime. Also seeing the price recover, plantation owners and investors alike responded in force. Believing the Panic of 1837 to be done and over, farmers began producing cotton at a breakneck pace. By 1839, the American cotton machine was operating at full capacity, and the deluge of cotton hitting English markets was finally enough to thoroughly overwhelm demand. According to Edward Baptist, merchants in 1839 had shipped a record-breaking 660 million pounds of cotton to England, which was more than in any previous year. However, where 1837's cotton supply was enough to soak the demand for cotton, 1839's shipment was enough to saturate it entirely. Cotton prices began to falter in the face of all of this fresh supply, and then they began to collapse. In 1839, cotton prices went from a high of $0.14 per pound to a low of $0.07 per pound, shedding a full 50%. The unthinkable had occurred. Nicholas Biddle's Pennsylvanian Bank of the U.S., which was remembered as the chief among cotton-speculating banks, was ruined. Falling cotton prices touched off a run on the bank, which fractured confidence in other banks exposed to the commodity. This time, though, the run wasn't localized to just New England banks, and depositors began a run on banks all over the western and southern United States. The speculative, overextended nature of these banks led to their destruction, as well as to a widespread economic collapse. By 1840, the price of cotton showed no signs of recovering. Banks, especially in the south, were failing. Lending froze, and prices, without the fuel that credit offers, necessarily plummeted. Business all but ceased. People lost their homes, people lost their jobs, people lost their retirement savings. The depression was on. By 1842, the money supply had experienced a spasmodic contraction as at least 200 banks had declared bankruptcy, taking their lending and their paper notes along with them. Imagine one day, the paper in your wallet has some perceived value, but the next day, the bank that had issued that paper money had ceased to exist. Your paper was worthless. In response to the Panic of 1839 and ensuing depression, one Alabamian said, quote, Montgomery is completely run down. There's nothing to do in here but the courts, unquote. James Paulding, a cabinet member of Martin Van Buren, said of the people of Illinois, quote, It was a feverish anxiety, the headlong haste, the insatiable passion for growing rich in a hurry that brought them and other states to where they are now, standing shivering on the verge of bankruptcy, unquote. And finally, James Buck of Chicago said, quote, "The wealth that many of them supposed they possess took to itself wings and flew away. Lots of land for which fabulous prices had been paid in 1836 were now of no commercial value whatsoever." Unquote. The parallels, by the way, between the panic of 1837 and the 2008 crisis are too stark to ignore. In 2008, speculation and the, quote, insatiable passion for growing rich in a hurry, unquote, pervaded investors in the same way that it did the investors in the 1830s. New financial instruments, collateralized debt obligations in 2008, and faith bonds in 1836, fueled by easy lending standards, led to wildly inflated price bubbles. The collapse of major firms, New Century Financial and most notably Lehman Brothers, preceded the crash of 2008 and the ensuing recession, and the collapse of the three W's, Wildest, Wiggins, and Wilson, as well as Herman Briggs and Joseph and Company, preceded the crash of 1837 and of 1839. And finally, both events were driven by the inflation of an assets price, which investors thought could do nothing but go up. In 1837 it was cotton, and in 2008 it was houses. But in both cases, it took a saturation of the market to cause the unthinkable to occur. In 1839, nobody thought cotton supply could saturate the market and push prices down. In 2008, it was the same with houses. Making matters worse, as soon as the price of those assets began to dip, overleveraged speculative companies were the first to go under, selling their assets and causing prices to drop sharply. This was the case in 2008 for houses and in 1839 for cotton. But here is one very big difference, the stance of the administration that oversaw the U.S. through the Panic of 1837 and 1839, and the stance of the administration which oversaw the 2008 financial crisis. The administrations of the 1830s and 1840s were characterized by their laissez-faire approach to economics, a la Adam Smith. The administrations that oversaw the 2008 crisis were highly interventionist, a la John Maynard Keynes. Let's talk about the hands-off economic approach, characterized by the administrations of the 1830s and 1840s. First, Andrew Jackson, who was president until 1837, had the philosophy of a staunch libertarian. The bank war that he launched against the Second Bank of the U.S. ushered in a period of federally unregulated finance known as the free banking era. Jackson vetoed the renewal of the Second Bank of the U.S.'s charter in 1832, which was the only institution with a semblance of regulatory power over the nation's monetary policy. He then neutered the bank's remaining years by pulling all federal funds out of its vaults and putting that gold and silver into the hands of 91 private banks. Martin Van Buren, the eighth president of the U.S. and Jackson's successor, went a step further. He believed in the total separation of government and banking and took federal funds back out of the private banks and placed that money in the vaults of a newly created independent treasury. It was basically just a storehouse for the government's gold and silver, but this way, no private banks could lend or print on it. The ninth president, William Henry Harrison, though of the Whig party and a strong proponent of government involvement in the economy, died of pneumonia after just 30 days in office, before he could accomplish anything. Whig hopes of government intervention in the economy were dashed with Harrison's death. Hopes were doubly dashed after Harrison was replaced by President John Tyler, who carried forward the laissez-faire approach, twice vetoing legislation for a new central bank. Why I'm sharing this is because I want to show how there was no one to bail out the system, or provide liquidity, or restore confidence, unlike today, where the Federal Reserve offers lending windows to help ensure bank liquidity and can act as the lender of last resort. During the period of free banking in the 1830s and 1840s, there was no one. Who had the authority to control inflation? Who could provide capital to ailing banks long enough to endure a run? No one. There was no assistance coming from the federal government. The laissez-faire administrations of Jackson, Van Buren, and Tyler believed the government had no place meddling in the affairs of the banking sector. The economy, it was believed, was best left on its own. There was no FDIC insuring bank deposits, so if confidence in the banking system cracked, it became a race for depositors to see if they could withdraw their money before the bank went bankrupt. This, by the way, is called a bank run. You can imagine, from a depositor's perspective, an ailing banking system was a nightmare. There was no hope of a bailout or any federal assistance of any kind whatsoever. A bailout wasn't even conceivable to Americans in those days. Banks were on their own, and depositors doubly so. I have to add here that the Keynesian approach to economics, where the government gets involved to stimulate the economy when consumer demand proves unable to do so, is still a pretty controversial approach, and some of the interventionist tools like the FDIC, setting the discount rate and federal bailouts have plenty of critics like Peter Schiff, who despises all three of those. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, exists to insure bank savings accounts. The upside is that traditional bank runs are basically non-existent now. I'm never going to rush on Wells Fargo and demand my savings from them because I know that if they were to collapse, the FDIC would pay me. It sounds like a pretty good deal, and in many ways it is. The problem is, though, that as Peter Schiff points out, now I have no real interest in checking to ensure that Wells Fargo isn't doing something irresponsible with my money, like making bad loans on it or making poor investments with it. Likewise, Wells Fargo can get away with making bad loans or poor investments because it knows that depositors don't really care. Obviously, Wells Fargo isn't trying to make bad loans and bad investments, but with the FDIC, they have an added layer of protection from nosy depositors because there are no nosy depositors. And of course, federal bailouts are quite controversial too. We'll get into it more in future episodes, but if banks know that they're going to get bailed out, suddenly they have less incentive to run a tight ship. An otherwise conservative bank might start dabbling in speculative, high-risk investments if they know that the federal government will bail them out if things go wrong. By the way, economists call this problem moral hazard, and it will take center stage in future episodes. But in the 1830s, there was no FDIC. And under the laissez-faire administrations of the 1830s and 1840s, there were certainly no bailouts. In desperation, some investors looked to the states for help, but the states themselves were crumbling under the weight of extreme leverage in a crashing economy. Nine of the 27 states defaulted, responsible for two-thirds of privately held government debt. Investors were outraged, especially those in Europe. James de Rothschild, head of the family's Bank in Paris, said to an American representative, You may tell your government that you have seen the man who is the head of finances in Europe, And he has told you that you cannot borrow a dollar, not a dollar. Though most of the states eventually did repay their debts, the crisis had an immediate effect on American government finance. For starters, the states had to turn to taxes, particularly property, corporate, and inheritance taxes, to create revenue. This was a new thing. Taxes were quite minimal before this era, and despite repeated attempts by the states and the federal government to levy them, Americans were often non-compliant, even violent when new taxes surfaced. As an example, just consider the Whiskey Rebellion in 1791, which occurred after the federal government tried to tax distilled spirits. The states recognized the inherent difficulties of taxation. For much of the time since the Revolution, states had generated revenue from internal land sales, licensing fees, and state investments. Some states also levied sporadic property taxes and flat taxes on a per-head basis. However, like federal taxes, state taxes were also minimal. Since they had very little tax revenue, many states like Indiana, Michigan, Maryland, Mississippi, and Illinois turned to taking on tremendous amounts of debt to fund public works and infrastructure projects in the 1820s and 1830s, selling state bonds to foreign investors and domestic banks alike revealing just how willing states were to leverage up while the going was good. By 1841, a full two-thirds of Maryland's state budget was going to servicing the interest payments on its debt. Worst of all, Pennsylvania's interest payments were 200% of the state's budget in 1841. Predictably, as noted earlier, many of these states defaulted when the economy took a nosedive in 1839. The moral of the story isn't that debt is evil. To the contrary, well-managed debt is one of the most powerful tools a state, country, a company, or even a person can wield. The problem is that when the going is good, the temptation to over-leverage yourself is sometimes too great to resist. When prices just keep going up, it's easy to get wrapped up in the fear of missing out, or what finance nerds like myself call FOMO. FOMO, the fear of missing out, drives people and it drives companies and nations alike to recklessly take on more and more debt while the going is good. But when prices stop going up, and demand or credit dry up, the folks who overleverage themselves during the good times wind up finding themselves like Pennsylvania in 1841, with not 100% of the budget, but 200% of all of its money going to its creditors. That's the problem with debt. That's why it's so scary. But the solution is discipline. You can accept some degree of debt, but make sure that if the economy plateaus or falls off a cliff, your payments won't be so high that they'll destroy you. Yes, that means leaving some profit on the table when the going is good, but in exchange, you can keep your shirt when the going is bad. It's a good rule for investors, businesses, and governments. Alright, I'll get off my soapbox. Clearly, most states in the 1830s had a poor understanding of this concept. And when the economy finally did tank, The states that borrowed with abandoned were left for ruin, and the states that didn't borrow with abandoned were ruined by association. Money stopped flowing from foreign investors into the United States, even to the states who kept their balance sheets in order and didn't take out too much debt. This motif, by the way, of over-borrowing when the going is good, only to be pilloried by creditors when the going gets rough, will show up time and time again throughout this podcast. Even today, You can see versions of this issue, overborrowing, loosening lending standards, and worsening debt-to-income ratios are some of the telltale signs of a bubble. This episode started with two quotes. One while the economy was on the up-and-up in 1836, and one when the going had gone to hell in a handbasket by 1841. What happened in between the two quotes was that the economy underwent an asset bubble, namely in cotton, real estate, and slaves, which was fueled by gigantic quantities of debt and inflation. This episode started with two quotes, one while the economy was on the up and up in 1836, and one when the going had gone to hell in a handbasket by 1841. What happened in between the two quotes was that the economy underwent an asset bubble, namely in cotton, real estate, and slaves which was fueled by gigantic quantities of debt. The debt was issued by the ever-increasing number of state banks, who, flush with gold and silver, printed paper notes and loaned them out. The states, too, had issued tremendous sums of debt, as that was the politically more palatable option than raising taxes. It's interesting to note here, though, that the federal government was not overleveraged. The conservative economic nature of the Jacksonian Democrats, combined with the soaring federal revenue coming in from land sales at bubble-top prices, meant that the federal government was running a surplus during the 1830s. President Jackson even managed to fulfill his dream of paying off the federal debt, which he accomplished in 1835. It was the first and probably the last time that that will ever happen. Though Jackson deserves respect for his handling of the federal budget in the 1830s, the lack of a central bank meant that the private banks were unleashed to print as much money as they wanted. This all gave way to a massive inflationary bubble, during which investments and prices in aggregate shot up. But the bubble was abruptly popped by policies like Jackson's specie Circular and the Bank of England's monetary tightening and England's general demand for Species. The contractionary effects of policy decisions and international economics were exacerbated when cotton prices dipped in 1837. Everyone held their breath during a bank run, which appeared to have been contained to only the New York region. The next year, cotton prices recovered briefly due to a handful of banks buying massive quantities of cotton in an attempt to gamble on the commodity's price. They were buying the dip, one might say. But by 1839, cotton supply had saturated the market, causing the commodities price to fall precipitously. Cotton brokerage houses suddenly collapsed, and the banks who lent to the brokerages necessarily went belly up too. And that's not to mention all of the banks who were ruined after gambling on cotton's price. As banks collapsed, a bank run ensued, lending froze altogether, and the inflationary price bubble turned into a deflationary death spiral. People lost their savings, companies went out of business, unemployment went up, entire states defaulted on their debts, and the economy went into a depression between 1839 and 1843. The whole episode is an interesting example of the threat that inflation poses to an economy, because inflation can masquerade as asset price appreciation and help to spark the formation of bubbles. It's also interesting to watch what the banking sector did when it lost any real regulation and was left to its own devices. To be clear, some states did monitor their banks, but as far as federal or central regulation goes, there was none. Some banks, particularly in the New England region, were prudent with their operations, but others, particularly those in the South and the West, were profligate money printers and irresponsible lenders. The upshot of this debacle was an obliteration of confidence in the states and the banks' ability to run their finances, as well as increased taxes and self-imposed debt limits on the part of the states. In the next episode, we'll zoom out of just focusing on the banking sector and consider the changes taking place in the country as a whole, namely territorial expansion, the gold rush, and the Mexican American War. Thanks for listening to this episode of the History of U.S. Economics podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, follow the show on Twitter, at useconpodcast.